This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And we have our OGs. The OG, OGs are joining us for the panel today to talk uh, a little. We're, we're getting sassy today. I figured that, that was, a, that was a, a nice title, right, guys? We're getting sassy. But uh, joining us today, we got Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital. What's up, Stephen? Hey, Bobby. Well, clearly the dad jokes are coming in now uh, to oh, this, this is... point in the podcast. Yeah, I, I didn't want to wait. I figured we'd hit the people with what they want, immediately, with which was just bad dad it. jokes, you know. Yeah. And then uh, and then we got Kevin Shea at The Good Prick on Twitter. And uh, by the way, as of recording, we're at 455. We need to get Kevin to 500. All right. Go follow him. He's a high quality follow. You know, we're not just doing this to, uh, you know, try and get an award for our own, uh, 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 what, what's the clout or anything like that. Like get Kevin to 500. All right, Kevin, what's going on? Uh, sitting in the snowstorm up here in the coast of Maine, enjoying mm. the whiteness and trying to settle in, you know, so we'll see what's going to happen. Can you guys tell me what, so snow is, it's that white stuff. That's thing behind you, Bobby. It's on, the, cold. it's on the tops of the mountains behind you. Turn around. Yeah, there it is. See, that's that's that, snow. That's snow. I thought I, I thought that this was a painting. You know that like sometimes people put the white thing for like texture. You know, yeah. a little juxtaposition. I didn't realize that that was actually, you know, cold and it was a a thing. Right. As you're I mean, wearing a t-shirt, basically, and uh, this is why I tried to wear the uh, the fluffy wool coat here to to honor the six inches that just dropped. I got this one. Yeah, I was gonna say for I didn't I didn't get the memo because I don't I I'm still trying to understand this concept of 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 it's snow right okay well I think that's the stock right I mean we're getting into the SAS discussion today so yeah I, I think snow is somewhat related and ironically enough the snow the original incarnation of the ticker snow was probably my best investment ever it was the old Intra West Resorts. The ski company from 2014, 15, 16 got bought out in early 17, which then allowed the snow ticker to be available for the latest incarnation, which I think is more on the on the line of what we're talking about today. Although I'm still not, I still don't fully understand what snow does. Maybe Kevin can explain it. The, the company. I have no idea. <laughs> Well, that's all, folks. <laughs> that's that's our that, show today, that, Kevin. You know what? That's a good way to get to, you know hashtag uh, snow snow hashtag yeah. snow. You know that that'll get that'll get a, at least another five. We got dad right. jokes and uh, snow related items with no context <laughs> at all. <laughs> good stuff. I was gonna say, Stephen, that was a perfect transition into SAS and what we're talking. I tried. About. That I was tried. that was pretty. That was pretty. No, you you steered me. You know, because I could have kept going on my snow on my snow gig you know so that was that was a good that was a good producer steer but yeah. I, I i figured we would you know we both said offline we're relying heavily on kevin and his expertise having sat on as a board of director on a couple SaaS companies so you know let 
we we could do probably I don't I don't even know. We could do countless hours talking about SaaS because it's just so far reaching and 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 I'd say still even in the arguably in the early innings, you know, with with where we can go from here because as technology improves and as tech as just yeah, as we continue to move forward, you know, new SaaS type businesses and models could be invented. But you know, where we're at currently, I mean, Kevin, kick us off. Where Tell people what they want to know. What, what do we mean by a SaaS business model and where are we at? Well, the simplest simplest way to describe SaaS models is it's a, it's a business dependent upon recurring revenues, <clears throat> typically uh, typically by some sort of um, uh, sign-up subscription model. Uh, however, there are other means as well. So again, it's, 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 it's dependent almost exclusively on recurring revenue and the buildup of recurring revenue over time as as the number of subscribers increases and the number of users increases. I think that's what comes down. The the um, the development of a SaaS company is a bit interesting because you have to put a lot of cash in up front. You put a lot of money in up front with the expectation of getting a, long, a very long-term reward out, out the back. So it's a, it's a business model that is far different than many other business models where you're putting in uh, quite a bit of research, research money, uh, CapEx money, et cetera, in your building. You're building the business and, and and hoping to have immediate returns on sales and things of that type. Um, the the long term value of the of the uh, any SaaS company is the fact that you have a very stable and re- repeatable and reliable uh, source of source of income from either the subscribers or from the the the, uh, the types of users that you have pulled in maybe corporate. Uh, the other thing that one has to be careful of when doing things like valuation on SaaS businesses is you have to be aware that the that the business model between uh, the B two C companies and the B two B companies is far different. All right. Um, so uh, the, the company that I was with, for example, was in the B the B B two B business, um, and the sales was to you know corner office executives and and uh, mid level managers who wanted to rely upon um, uh, a software application that literally could have been legacy, um, but the whole product was com- was uh, converted into a, a SaaS business and and um, and and really kind of being being uh, distributed uh, in that fashion. So again, what you're doing is that you're oftentimes uh, selling software, and this is going to be to be, you're selling software that otherwise might've been a CapEx purchase and now it's an OpEx purchase. And that's a big, big, big difference for many companies that drives the, it drives the decision-making down into the middle of the management of companies because again, the, the, the choice is, you know, on operating a budget where you're spending $1,000 a month rather than a CapEx budget where you're spending $2 million of an upfront purchase. So again, that's kind of the simplest form of B2B uh, SaaS. Um, I think many people are, are, are familiar with the, B, the, the B2C where you're purchasing some sort of, of service uh, from a provider and that service is costing you X dollars a month. That's the standard simplest look, way to look at it. The valuations, Go all over the place. Um, again, you can't compare a, a B2C company to a B2B company uh, for valuation. They're just completely different. Um, they also range from companies that, that are, I mean, they even call Salesforce, which I don't own. They call Salesforce a B, B2B SaaS company. All right. So 
it's getting to the point where everybody's kind of being one. It makes it easier. But what happens in valuation, you get valued oftentimes against those big companies. Okay. And it's funny because some valuations of the company I was with, uh, which is a microcap company, we were literally compared to uh, in a comp to uh, Salesforce and a couple of others. Work, work, was it Workday, I believe. Um, so the, the way they value is also kind of screwy. Okay. But the, the, the interesting thing about the SaaS businesses and how the valuation works is a, is a tremendous dependency upon uh, minimizing what's called churn. Okay, and churn is the loss of subscribers over time. So that a SaaS business, if you want to generate a high valuation, you have to have a very, very small churn, or you have a positive churn, you have a positive churn, which means you're actually increasing the number of people rather than decreasing. So the 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 vari the variables uh, that play into how to value a SaaS company can be all over the place. And, and when you go in and look, uh, there's a ton of research that's been done by, by analysts and others trying to develop means of being able to come up with a, a model for uh, valuing SaaS companies. Um, they are all over the place and they go through any number of different means from DCF to EBITDA based, EBITDA based on, on valuation, on sales and everything else. They go all over the place. Uh, so there isn't anything that's consistent that I can see from, from that model. Uh, maybe there is on much, much larger businesses where there's a bit more stability um, in the way in which the income is, is derived. Okay. So I think that what it comes down to is that there's, there's, a, there's a high variability um, in, the way, in the way it's being assessed. There's a high variability between uh, B, B to C and B to B. So the valuations can be uh, can look to be a little bit screwball. And even when I was looking at this whole thing, the the uh, the the way in which analysts valued um, SaaS companies, particularly the ones the, the scale that I was involved in, changed in two years. They went from they went from something like uh, seven to eight x uh, to four to five x sales. Um, which is probably the easiest way of being able to value it. So it's really, it, it's, it's even though it's, so it's still variable um, and still changing as the SaaS model changes and as people really begin to try to figure out whether or not there's a particular model that is applicable. And you know, again, that's, that's kind of like the general basis of it. Um, one can go on and on. I mean, one can read a ton about this stuff uh, if you really wanted to, um, but I think that's probably a brief Brief, long explanation. <laughs> yeah. Do you wow, think? Uh, do you think the variability in kind of valuations across these different types of companies? Forget about B two B and B two C, but just companies within each uh, sub. Do you think that variability comes from judgments from analysts based on what? should be adjusted to be capitalized and and what don't like the the customer acquisition cost and yeah. the judgment of how sticky those customers are do you think these judgments are, are what cause these differences in valuations which is essentially is how good do they tell the story that's great i mean one of the things you just mentioned was the cost of acquisition um and cost of acquisition plays into the to the algorithm that most people use um if the cost of if the cost of, of acquisition is let's say just generally high, 
and the loss of a subscriber against that cost of acquisition um, is high as well. So if you say it costs you, let's just make up a number. Say it costs you $260 to, to, do, to get an acquisition for, for a subscriber. And that customer, that customer is going to uh, stay with you for two years as minimum. However, the, guy, the person leaves um, in eight months and has only spent 80 bucks. Okay, so you basically have in, the, in, that, in that case, you have a loss for all practical purposes to 260 minus to 280. So the, the cost of acquisition versus the cost of the annual return and annual, annual recurring revenue, ARR, which is the dominant factor, a monthly RR, um, are the ways in which people evaluate these things and through, through literally through an algorithm. Um, you talked about capitalization. I think you said capitalization. Is that what you were talking about, Stephen? Yeah, you know, when you think about traditional businesses and how you capitalize, you know, basically the accounting rules yeah. uh, allow for easier analysis from traditional businesses. And so they don't reflect well. The, the accounting rules are, are make it more difficult uh, to value the, some of these SaaS businesses, I, I think. Uh, so how do you adjust for that? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. I'm not an accountant, but one of the things I can mention is that uh, there are various there are variations in that. Is that I can really only talk to the uh, business side, you know, because I think the I think the consumer side is even straight more straightforward. But the business side, <clears throat> the accounting practices are kind of um, upset by the way in which one company and the other company wants to do the contract. Uh, one company may wish to pay you up front for the full year and then annualize the payment over the month. So you end up with a deferred payment, okay, which changes the accounting rules from the standpoint of like legacy systems where you account for all of the revenue off that sale at the very, at the very, very beginning. Say, say you sold a, a legacy product for a million bucks, you account for that a million bucks immediately. But now say you had a million dollars in, in SaaS um, commitment or contract, but the, but the country, the company, sorry, the company has said, I'm going to give you the money now, but I want to, you know, but, but the accounting processes and the, and the, uh, the means of doing it will, will um, advise that the million dollars has been identified and contracted for, but it's all deferred revenue, uh, deferred payments, not deferred, but yeah, it's yes. deferred revenue. So, it's, so they're basically, so you are in the situation where the accounting is a little bit off off normal yeah more for i you know I, I i hear you there and in fact the company that i'm a chair of we have a, a legacy internet business where we have to do that exact same type of accounting where sometimes there's payments one year you know someone will pay for an entire year but it's a monthly uh, others pay on a monthly service and it, you know it's some interesting interesting uh, ways to to show that uh and you want to be obviously as transparent and uh, to your investors as possible. And I think the accounting rules generally uh, allow for some clarity there. Uh, but on the acquisition side, right, how much money are you spending as a company to acquire various customers and the stickiness of that? Right. And it sort of can be a lost leader situation. That's where I think people like me struggle, other investors struggle. And we say, well, hey, this company is trading at, you know, 20 times revenue or something, how can that be justified? Right. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe there's not a lot of revenue, right? Or, or maybe, uh, you, you know, it's you have to make these certain adjustments because whatever money is being spent, um, 
you know, is to acquire a customer that could be around for 20 years. Uh, And that that makes it tough. And it it shows sometimes these really crazy valuations that the company ends up growing into. Right. I think that the the reason why is because you're futuring uh, not three to four years, but seven to eight to nine to 10 years, possibly on the SaaS models. So they get a little bit, again, screwball because they're they're out there. Um, the And if you really want to see how a company could grow to, into those valuations, it has to do with their algorithms of growth. Um, so let's sit down and say that they have a thousand customers this month and it's growing at some normal rate, like the 1200 the following month, 14. And some, so somebody will dig, begin to do some projections. And also they do it based upon, you know, Dollars of dollars of marketing money uh, spent to sales sales um, delivered. So again, there are some s- simple and more complex algorithms that can be used for model development, in which the uh, the company is projecting to the investors that this is what we're going to do. Okay, the question is, is that what happens when you don't do it? What happens when the the churn uh, exceeds your expectations, or the churn doesn't happen, and that you you're struggling to just to keep keep um, uh, subscribers. The, 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 I'm familiar with a company that was doing, <clears throat> they converted the, uh, it's called uh, electronic logging. It's for drivers. Um, any driver who drives a tractor trailer has to log his hours um, according to uh, some of the government regulations that are out there. Um, and they, they install these devices inside of trucks. A little tracker, a little, a little device that counts the number of hours for practical purposes. And they went from being selling the individual device to selling the individual device as a service. Okay. And this company, what they found was that they could sell them, but they couldn't hold, they couldn't manage the the uh, the uh, subscription because they it was highly competitive. And it's still that business is highly competitive, the logging devices. So even though this company showed growth and showed promise and things of that type, I think they got caught in, in the tailwind of too many competitors offering the same type of product. So again, if you have something that's, again, we all know this, but if you have something that's quite unique and, and not very competitive, then you can steal the market. <clears throat> you know, but however, if you have something else that's you know, not, as, not as unique, then it's really a crapshoot at that point in time. So to, I want to kind of take us back just holistically thinking about SaaS. And I, I know we were kind of getting in the weeds a little bit here, but really what we're talking about is, especially from an investor's perspective, what makes this attractive is that you're talking about an asset light business, you know, that uh, there, there's not a ton of CapEx, you know, and, and you're also in some respects, as we start to get into a little bit here, you can kind of project out what maybe future earnings might be. Uh, in, in some respects, of course, you have to figure out what the churn rate is and, you know, what their cost of acquisition could be. And, and but at least modeling it out, it makes it somewhat easier. I don't know ne- necessarily than any other kind of business model, but at least there's some kind of formula in place so that you can kind of better understand what's happening. But it, I mean, it varies from industry to industry. And what's interesting that I've seen, especially in microcaps, you know, I, I've definitely a few companies that I know, you know, Kevin, off the top of my head is that it seems that this model has really been disrupting some very old traditional industries in ways in which we just haven't seen, you know, and, and I feel like it's been starting quite a bit at the microcap level. I don't know if you guys have been seeing the same thing. I'm unmuting. Um, yeah, the, there's, 
the model, it, it's kind of interesting because when you stick around and say it's sassy, okay, well, as I said in the early introduction, you're really looking at a recurring revenue model and the projection of those, of those uh, recurring continuous, re continuous um, streams of income um, makes it very attractive to an, in to an investor because it's almost predictable. Okay? Um, the other part of this SaaS, it's not SaaS, but it's recurring revenue is in disposables. Okay, so mm -hmm. there are a number of medical device companies, for example, that that offer uh, any not any number of different um, uh, devices that uh, I, they what they what they have is they cannot be sterilized; they have to be thrown away. So you sell you sell somebody an underlying um, foundation or a platform or you know a, 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 a box, a technology box, and what you do is you plug something into it. Uh, and every time you plug something into it, that's a, that becomes a disposable. So there's there are these models. I mean, so the razor example, razor razor blade. I mean, that's the razor right. razor blade model. Perfectly, yeah. exactly what it is. Um, there's a company that I, that I know that they sell filters. Okay, they sell they sell filters into uh, blood machines, and um, they throw them away. So the more the more. So it's all about in that case, it's all about the number of machines that you install, the number of in, the number of indications that it can be used for. And the number of hospitals it has. So again, it's just at this point in time, it's a numbers game. You yeah. increase your numbers, you increase your sales. Thank you very much. And it's almost somewhat predictable because the, because what you can go into in the medical term, the medical side of it is you can go in and sit down and say, okay, how many of these indications are are attended to each year? An indication being um, a disease or or a um, um, how many people have cancer? How many people have diabetes? That's the indication. Uh, whether you know brain or blood or whatever, but some some devices have multiple indications. So again, you can look at those things and say, "Wow, that's a recurring revenue model," okay, and that has to be looked at as well in the same kind of thing. I mean, would you guys I, say? That, well, you know, it's funny. One one thing that I, I forgot to mention to you before we got into that part is, you know, I, I've even found myself in some of the interviews that I do with management teams that we post on the YouTube channel is, you know, I'll ask. Is there a recurring aspect to your business model? You know, it's yeah. like it's like you almost have to ask that question. And 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 companies now, I feel like almost feel feel like they have to have some sort of recurring aspect to their businesses, whether it's SaaS or not. Razor, razor blade, SaaS. You know, just they. I mean, I, I mean, look and and to their defense, I mean, as investors, that's something that we want to see, right? We you want to be able to try and predict what you know the, what their revenue might be, you know, in the coming year or quarter. But, you know, I, I had an interesting question for you guys. I mean, do you think, I mean, do you think the SaaS model, the moat is closing or, you know, how, how is, how is SaaS evolving in a way? Because it seems like it's closing in this idea of, you know, just so many success stories that started off as freemium models, right? right. Where you get the freemium and then you, 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 you upsell them on some kind of subscription service. You know, what do you guys think? By the way, Kelvin's about to join in. Here we go. <laughs> That's Maybe great. I'll re-ask. You know, I'll re-ask the question for Kelvin. We'll we'll throw him throw him right into the fire. Yeah, go ahead and do that. All right. What's up, Kelvin? Hey guys. Hey nice you guys. All right. By the way, this is Kelvin Sito at Slingshot Capital. He's joining. It's, you know, we're very appreciative every time he does join us early mornings because it's late nights in Singapore. <laughs> so, uh, Kelvin, thanks for joining us, man. Hope I'm not missing too much. Uh, oh no, we're throwing th Kevin. <laughs> oh, Kelvin, we're about to throw you right into the fire. So I'm gonna I'm gonna re-ask this question going right to you. So awesome. you know, 
we're, we were talking, you know, we're talking sass today. We're talking again, sassy as usual, you know, a little sassy here. And, um, you know, I, I asked the question to Steven and Kevin here is that, do you feel that the moat's closing a little bit for SaaS? You know, how, how is this idea of this business model growing? Because, you know, you, you starting to see the freemium model where you, get some free and then you you're upsold something to then subscribe, you know, what, what's, and a lot of successful companies are doing it like that. So what, what are you seeing right now and how, how does this model really evolve? Yeah, I, I think I would say that SaaS is one of the most customer customer centric uh, model that you ever seen as a business model, like whoever gives free stuff, you know, before you even pay, right. You get to use the product even before, before you pay a single cent. And I think, um, for example, right, if it's a SaaS company in terms of the cloud architecture, I think it's, it's, it's way better than anything that I've ever seen, you know, in terms of the business model. For example, if you look at Symmetic, which is obviously not a SaaS business, you know, whenever uh, the updates, updates that has been given, you know, it has to be patched subsequently and sometimes the patches takes a long time. But as, as opposed to look at the new generation, the cloud native uh, uh, competitor, which is CrowdStrike, right? Whenever there's a new um, uh, patch that's being done, it actually automated. It's, the updates are automatically updated behind the scenes. And I think it actually keeps all of them um, well protected. So I, I really like the cloud uh, uh, approach. And also I think about, if you look at Zoom, right? There are a lot of users who are on the free free side of the, of the business. They don't even pay. You look at Cloudflare as well. Um, uh, providing a CDN free as well. So I think at the end of the day, uh, if you look at a cloud business, because the fact that it has very high operating leverage, you know, um, the cost to kind of provide an additional service to an ad additional user is actually very low, which is why they are actually able to thrive to do really well on the freemium side. And only if people really feel that, you know, they have utilized the free side, they, they saw the, the value in there, they said that they saw that how the operations have been improved, then that's where the trust is being earned from the customer side. And subsequently, when you kind of like sell them an additional software, they see the value in that and they pay and they don't mind paying. And I think the best in class sales companies, they tend to have very low churn rates. And precisely why? Because the customers are already convinced that this is a great product. Uh, even they pay us, before even they're paying a single dollar. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if they want more features and they are asked to, to pay, why not, right? They would absolutely love to pay for that. It's fascinating because what Kelvin just just described is really the B2C model. Um, we were talking about the B2B model. And I think it's pretty pretty cool that, uh, as he said, that the freemium portion of the B2C has been, I think it, I think it might be fading, but you can talk about that later on, Kelvin. <gasps> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, but the but the freemium part um, has had its has has had some value con contribution to to increasing the subscriber base. Um, the interesting thing about it is, is that the that freemium model has been discussed in B2B and it fails miserably, okay? Um, the uh, the other part about it is, is that the, the again, the B2B side, look at the moat, Bobby, you're asking about moats. I think the B2B side <clears throat> um, is, is having, is, is there for a while at least. I don't think the boat, moat's closing in any fashion. Um, and the reason why is because the, the, the uh, the way in which the model is presented to the company is is shifting the company the the purchaser model from again from a capex um, type of deal to an opex type of deal, and I think it's a big I think that's big from the standpoint of monetary uh, company monetary management. Uh, so again, I think that there's that there's um, there's strong evidence to suggest that the, the companies really want to have 
the, the payment model altered, okay? Uh, but again, going back to what Kelvin said, it's, it's, this, the B2B is far different from the B2C. Well, you know what's interesting. You know what's interesting on on that point is is when you when you think about the value prop, and 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 Kevin, you mentioned Salesforce earlier in the in this on this panel, and you know one thing I you know I've used Salesforce in the past, and one thing that I really noticed and I loved about Salesforce full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder, but it it seemed to have that user experience that you would want if it were just B to C. You know, it, it has that user interface that's very, I mean, well, it takes a second, but but once you once you kind of figure it out relatively quickly, because it's very clear how each thing's work and what this is, you know, accounts and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it has that feeling that you want if it's a software that you'd want to be using, you know, for, for in that B2C type model, you know, I mean, what do you guys think about that? I mean, because because for the most part, it seems like a lot of the B2B user interfaces or that are trying to have this SaaS model for their businesses are not as B2C friendly as they probably could be. And then I think ultimately would help them win, you know, so or win more business. So I, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, And that usability is much different now than it was, say, 10, 12 years ago, because our work life and personal life, those lines have totally blurred. If you remember 10 years ago or so, 12 years ago, when the iPhone started gaining prominence actually in the business community, remember at the time when you were at work, you had your BlackBerry <laughs> and they said, you cannot, you, you don't want to use your personal cell phone. You are not allowed to use your personal cell phone for work related things. And so people at work had a BlackBerry, people had their you know, iPhone at, at home. And what is that like today? Right. Obviously the there's no blackberries that uh, very rare that people are using blackberries, but also people have one phone typically now, <laughs> and they do a lot of work related things on that phone. Now, of course, working from home, the boundaries are, are totally gone. And so with that blurriness though, it actually leads to I think more usability, the incentives for more usability on the business side. Because if you're getting interfaces that are easy to use and other things like that, that are more personal in nature, you, you're going to start demanding that through some of the business applications. And I think you see that with Salesforce and other uh, CRM tools. And now there's even some uh, like bookkeeping tools and things like that on the business side that have become much easier to use and much more you know, kind of the interface is more personal in nature and there'll be more and more of that. And if you see, I mean, this is, look, this is why like Robinhood, for example, um, just as an example on the broker side has gained so much prominence because it's, it's usability is so easy that any idiot 18 year old <laughs> can use it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there are uh, applications that are taken from that, that will be used uh, or will be applied more to, uh, more institutional trading interfaces as well. And that's probably a good thing long-term. You bring up a really interesting, it's so funny. I literally had just gotten an email on how <laughs> literally SEC charged Robinhood Financial with misleading customers about revenue sources and failing to satisfy duty of best execution. I mean, they're, and they're going to be ordered to pay a huge fine. But what's, but what's interesting there, and you know, for all the faults that Robinhood has, but using them as an example here, is that when you are kind of at the forefront of creating a 
new user experience that can be very disruptive, whether it's because the model is freemium versus just a breakthrough new experience, you know, there's these types of potentials here, right? Where you have to think about the consumer, depending on what that service you're going to be providing and making sure that, I mean, it's impossible to forecast every possible thing that could happen or how your your platform could be used and abused. Uh, but at the same time, there's a sense of responsibility too when you create some of these platforms as well and and how you respond to that, you know? So, I mean, I, it sounds like hopefully they make some adjustments based on that, but Stephen, you were gonna say- Yeah, that. absolutely. And I mean, but to that point though, some things, the usability can be gamed in a way to generate more revenue. Right. And to uh, make engagement easier. And I'll give kind of a personal to business example, Uh, just the online portals for banks. Right. So we have we have, you know, your personal bank, Bank America, Chase, et cetera. Very easy. Bill pays very easy. Everything is set up very easily. And then on the other hand, on the business side, both for my fund that I run and also the public company, when you log into those interfaces, we're stuck 20 years ago. And it's very difficult to, why can't we make an online wire request, a wire transfer request, for example, very easily, like you can do in your personal account, you can't do in the business account. You know, that's kind of the next generation, I think, of uh, usability uh, that basically, you know, we're going to start demanding on the business side because we've been using it on the personal side. And you want that ease of use and the, the business company, whether it's a bank, uh, you know, corporate accounts for banks, or whether it's other examples, you know, they're the ones who are going to come out as winners over time that uh, make it just as easy to use on the business side as on the personal side. And, you know, how that relates to valuations and SaaS related things. I think, look, this is why Stripe is so successful. You know, this is probably why Snow, which we talked about earlier, but we don't know exactly what they do, <laughs> you know, is is a is success. This is why Square became successful. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I would I would I would support that one hundred percent. I mean, I've been in the game for quite some time, and one of the things that is clearly uh, a driver for success in any particularly any software application is ease of use. I and mean, the word has changed, usability, but it's always been ease of use. If you made it so that it was easy to use, you would kill the competition if the if the existing product was a little bit more clunky or whatever you want to say. So I think that's that's at the basis of, of the marketing of these types of tools. And I don't think it's, that marketing is different, whether it's SaaS or anything else. If you make it easy, people will, just, people will use it. Um, I think the one thing that's happening is I think that there is a, 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 if you want to use a a globalization, not the right word, but globalization around the general design model. uh, And I think you said it correctly, it is coming from successful consumer-based products because the businesses are incorporating the consumer type uh, uh, interfaces, the consumer type addresses and things of that type within their products. So I think you're absolutely right on that. So I would would support 100% the fact that uh, make it easy to use and you that's that's 90 percent it's i think i think there was studies done like 70 percent of the decision making is brought on by ease of use again particularly on these crappy legacy systems yeah and when you think about valuations right and the story that's being told and how do you uh, determine the stickiness of these customers i mean these are very esoteric and qualitatively based judgments and decisions and that's why i think you get so much of this variability of valuations of various 
various businesses, even whether it's B2B or B2C, you know, same, same thing that it's really difficult <laughs> to, to uh, judge long-term, you know, eventual kind of cash flow generation from, from yes. some of these businesses. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's probably reasonable to expect that, you know, if we're going to just look at churn rates, if we want to analyze that real quick, you know, if we're looking at B2B, I think you would, you would say the average churn rate for a successful uh, SaaS company is probably low, right? You know, because there's, there's probably high uh, integration costs and getting everything started up, you know, so if they're going to move from uh, one service to another, it's, it, you most businesses just have to think about, all right, well, what's my cost to now move everything versus with B2C, you kind of expect, all right, you know, I guess it depends industry to industry on how high that churn rate could be, right? Because it's relatively easy to, you know, uh, I'm not going to use Netflix anymore. I'm going to use this or, well, I mean, in my case, I'm an entertainment you know, I, I consume everything. So that's probably a bad example, but you know, and I'm not a shareholder in Netflix, but you know what I'm trying to say there. So, I mean, I, Kelvin, can you give us maybe a little bit of a, I, just based on your experience from what you've seen, I mean, what's, what's some average churn rates when you're looking at B2B and also B2C, you know, for what investors can look for as a, an average or what they can expect to, you know, a good company on both sides to have. Yeah. I, I think the focus has, been, I, I think before I, I want to talk about that, I also think about, you know, I, I'm a big believer of actually software because, you know, if you look at a business in itself, you kind of like outsource the difficult part about running uh, certain difficult operations, right? For example, you don't spend the capex, you don't spend the servers, you don't kind of maintain an engineering team. I think in the past, we kind of priced it based on uh, per license, per seat uh, kind of arrangement. But increasingly, what I've seen that have worked out really well to kind of align in terms of the customers and also uh, the software, de- uh, soft, uh, the software provider is actually usage-based uh, uh, pricing. Um, I think that's something that uh, Snowflake is using. That's something that um, I also believe uh, Fastly is using as well. So I, I think back to the question, um, um, you know, in terms of the churn rate, um, I, I think you're totally right. You know, there's some companies that have higher churn rates, there's some companies that have lower churn rates. You know, the B two B two B to B two C kind of nature. But I think um, to kind of like reframe that question, I think we kind of have to look at the dollar-based uh, retention uh, rate instead, right? So that's churn uh, inclusive of the expansion uh, spending from the cohort of the spending. Because unless if you look at churn, I think that could, sh- I mean, some there are some areas where, you know, um, maybe the product sort of doesn't have a strong uh, product market fit or, be- or because uh, certain companies, they go bankrupt, that's why they kind of like cancel the subscription. But they also within the same cohort, the same customers that have acquired for the single year uh, have a great expansion, right? It means they kind of spend additional money. For example, I spend probably like a half a million, but right now I spend like $700,000. So uh, to me, what is something uh, that is really good, I think is a dollar-based retention of more than 125%. I think that, that's a bad minimum. Um, so that's something that I actually uh, look at a lot. So. Um, as, as I think when Kevin and Stephen were sharing their stuff, I also was thinking a little bit of, about um, uh, B2B, right? Because, um, you know, the freemium model, I, I really believe that it doesn't work very well for B2B because B2B, their, their, their requirements are much higher. And in fact, even though it's a software delivering to the, to the product, but, you know, uh, they still want certain customizability. For example, if you look at Fastly, you know, even though you use their software, but you still need developers to kind of do configuration to give you that full range of customability. But for Cloudflare, the solutions are much 
simpler. But also think back about if you look at the biggest market caps around in, 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 in US, right? If you look at maybe like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, I do feel that while B2B business is a bit more sticky, but um, if you look at the best the best markets out there, right? The companies that have the largest uh, market caps, it just seemed to me that most of them are B2C, right? You still represent one of the biggest uh, market over there. So uh, I, I, I think while it's more enterprise customers are more staky, but I think it also should cater to other small medium businesses because that's, those are really the backbone of the economy and it could represent a lot of uh, opportunity if they do not target this, those sectors. Yeah, but again, I think uh, I would not just look at churn, but I look at dollar-based retention rate more than 125%. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's what I'm saying with the different models. Um, if you wanted to go in and talk about churn rates, um, it's kind of funny because they, they, they kind of flip backwards. They call a positive churn rate is when you lose subscribers. Okay, And if you have subscribers and the number starts to get into 5 6 7% of churn, you start to look bad. If you go over 10%, you're really in trouble. Um, the other thing that's quite fascinating is it's called negative churn. <laughs> when you add customers or you leverage or you're able to expand upon what it is so that there are ways in B2B in which you gain a customer and then you basically expand from there, okay? Um, and B2C, you typically don't expand because the person's using it over and over and over again. Um, it's got the, it's the upsell, if you want to use that. You can upsell in the B2B. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, Calvin, you may know better, but I don't know that well, is whether or not there's any much upsell going on in, um, in that, that area. Now, the other thing that Calvin mentioned, and he's, he's, he's absolutely on the money, is that the, we talk about a moat, and um, one of the moats that's, that's uh, one of the factors in, in, in uh, SaaS model moat security is the fact that the companies, corporations have also modeled in a new approach to IT. Um, as he said, that they're getting rid of all of these uh, services and the like going to the cloud. So what used to be a very traditional model for an IT department, which is hardware-based, is now becoming software service-based, and it's, it's, that's also going outsourcing. So um, the, the corporate models are shifting uh, to either respond to or drive uh, these types of things that that benefit them. Again, this this outsourcing has been going on forever and ever and ever. I mean, the simplest thing you can look at is some of these big companies used to have cafeterias. Okay, they used to run them themselves. This again, a long time ago, and they they outsourced those. And it became more and more and more an, an approach where you outsource things that aren't core competencies. Um, IT is now being considered to be not a core competency any longer because it's being overwhelmed by by all kinds of different uh, value deliverers. Uh, so it, there are there are these fundamental characteristics of corporate management that are changing, and they are creating this at stable moat uh, for a long time. However, as I've mentioned in the past on these moat conversations, I think moats are indefensible over the long time over the long term, and uh, because of time and innovation. But again, I think I think Calvin hit hit on the mark on, on some of the fundamental aspects of of why uh, these things work. And again, churn is. But he also mentioned the fact that you look at the total cost, what the what the what the impact is on on. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, acquisition costs, Kelvin, and, and the loss of loss of customers. And, and you know, if you if you if it cost you two hundred sixty dollars to acquire the customer, but you only extracted one hundred eighty dollars from the person before you left, then you're in trouble. Yeah. So it's the idea: of how long how long is the value deliver? How long is the value to the customer? 
how long does the value exist to the customer that the value that the customer sees and and uh, and, and chooses to participate in? And again, it's 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 a value proposition that has to be maintained over the time. And Kevin, I would argue that I think the upsell for the B to C. I think I think that model is definitely something that's been in place, even if they're already subscribed to it. You know, I think it's just also probably company to company, just looking at the economics. You know, you look at like a, you know, you look at like a Disney Plus. You know, full disclosure, not a, not a shareholder in Disney, but you know, you're seeing them. But I, but that might be just symptomatic of the you know movie theaters. It's impossible to go see any of their theatrical releases, so they just say, hey, subscribers, you pay an extra thirty bucks, you get to see a brand new release. Uh, before it comes out, but it could, but, but ultimately that could probably be a loss leader because, uh, you know, you guys know the cost of productions and it's very, very expensive. And, but maybe over the long term, as that gets adopted more, you know, it's that still, that might actually end up becoming economic. Right. Um, but I, I, I think it also, like I said, I think it's company dependent, you know, based on different kind of features that you have, um, that you can quickly create or not, or roll out or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely think there's a lot of value to upselling, even paying subscribers. It's just, you have to provide something that, you know, at the very least your customer, your customer has, and your subscribers have said specifically, we want this, you know, so you know that you can at least model out like, all right, if we roll this out, we know we're probably going to get at least 20% retention on this new feature that we're going to roll out. I mean, all about marketing. I mean, ultimately upsell is all about marketing and the, the the basic the basic summary is listen to your customers. I mean that's 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 the first the first rule in business. Listen to your customers and respond to their requests. Okay, rather than trying to cram something down their throats that you think that they want, and it, it's you know the, the likelihood of it failing is pretty high. So again, it's one of those things where upselling is driven almost exclusively, in my opinion, um, by the fact that the customers are demanding something more. Yeah, and I just want to add that I think uh, if you look at software in itself, it's, it's no longer looking at this as a one-time transaction. But, uh, you know, there's this book uh, by Kenzo, um, he, this book called Subscribe, it says that uh, it's, it's now a relationship, right? How do you ensure that relationship remains strong, right? It's just like having a wife, you know, you got to make sure that she has her needs being met, you know? So it's just like having a users, right? What are their needs that's being met as well? And so I do look at the best of class software companies, they usually have a marketplace, right? For example, if you talk about uh, Salesforce, uh, I don't own Salesforce, um, but I own CrowdStrike, or even you look at Par Technology, um, they do have their own unique marketplace whereby, you know, they do have partners, right? They do have developers that are actually developing APIs um, to actually enhance the features of the core software in itself. So um, as someone subscribes to the software, you know, maybe they need an additional, uh, uh, utility additional features. They can go to the software marketplace to actually add on some, some sort of like a plugin. And over time, you know, you, you build your whole business around it, right? Your operations around it. And for you to kind of like unsubscribe, it creates so much disruption and, and that's not really good. So uh, I, I believe it's, it's one of the most uh, stickiest business I've ever seen. But again, I think if they, they stop giving updates, you know, it's, it's very apparent that the business would, would end. Um, the relationship would end. So I think that's where Chen would, would appear. So it really forces a business to be really uh, customer-centric. And that's what I really love about uh, software businesses. It's a, it's a relationship. It's a very interesting uh, piece of information that I found out when I was doing all this research. Uh, I was looking at the Salesforce, already, already noted that I don't own it. 
one of the things about Salesforce is it's something like $22 billion business right now. Um, and they have, as you noted, they have tons of um, uh, partners and others. The one note that I can make was that, and I, I was just shocked, is that the amount of money that's made by management consultants servicing uh, Salesforce and Salesforce uh, uh, companies is 3x revenue of the 22 million that is generated from just sales, Salesforce alone. So the management consultants are making $66 billion providing services to, to hangers on about these things. I always just like, oh, you gotta be, this is, so again, it's a platform. And uh, because it's corporate, again, it, the, the whole value chain goes up and it becomes quite quite fascinating, quite revealing. I mean, how cool, how amazing is it to create a business where you now can put on your resume, Salesforce expert. You know, like that's the business we need to create where like people are using that as, you know, that that's a resume and it's totally legit. You know, like I, you, you want somebody to come in and be a Salesforce expert, you know, not because it's hard to use necessarily, but because it's, you know, it's a lot to manage there, especially if you're a bigger business. I'm a COBOL expert. You're a COBOL. Co you know, a COBOL programmers are making a shitload of money right now. Yeah. because all, they all, And they all look like me. There's a there's a huge shortage of uh, cobot uh, programmers and they are being paid really highly. So, congrats, Kevin's side job. It's a side hustle, uh, but you know, I mean, since we're talking about this, we I think we should touch on Microsoft and the transition really for quite a bit of quite a few of Microsoft's services from one-time sales to recurring revenue, yep. especially on uh, you know, when you when you think about the uh, Microsoft Office side, I'd be interested in hearing Kelvin and Kevin's uh, take on that and how we, you know, how risky was that at that time of transition and what does it look like going forward? Good question. Well, I must sit down and say I was going to write a Twitter uh, feed that basically said, "What the hell does Microsoft do these days?" Seriously, um, I'll let I'll let go, I'll transition to, to Kelvin, but I think that the uh, I know that they're doing this Azure software and that's basically in the cloud and so they're getting, they're getting the xbox gonna... kevin come on man get with the times What's they that? own xbox yeah exactly there we go kelvin can you can you help help kevin out here what, what did they do kevin <laughs> I, I i do think they have a lot of things that's going on in the business right now you know you have this commercial office 365 commercial you have linkedin you have dynamics you have azure and they are making a comeback really strongly in the uh, laptops area, surface, search advertising. So <clears throat> I, I think Stephen put out a great point, right? Like, how do you know whether, you know, what, what gave Microsoft that courage to kind of did that transition, right? You know, um, you know, if I pay one time versus now, I'm actually uh, paying a subscription uh, revenue. Um, but the, the way I look at it, maybe I draw my experience from some of my friends were working for the GovTech, that means Singapore's uh, government technology um, agency. Um, actually, Microsoft, if you look since the start of personal computing, it kind of coincided, like uh, uh, Microsoft was born out of that era. And since those times up to today, I think most of our documents are either processed in Excel, Word, or PowerPoint. Although I know there's Open Office, which is a like free software kind of thing. But, you know, you look at the amount of documents that's created around the world, all of them are mostly created with extension that belongs to Microsoft Office. So 
And you know, you would never want to. Is this kind of thing is it's called a cognitive reference, and also it's like everyone is using it. The network effects are just so strong. And today, if you just create maybe a a a, a file that is maybe end off with craft, right, and you send to someone, no one can open that file at all. And and either way, I think the ecosystem is so strong. It's just the fact that all of documents since computing has started has always been uh, with Microsoft 365 extension. And you know, people just cannot do without Office. It becomes a utility in our daily lives. Right? If you think about, oh, we have a broadband, we have our electricity, you know, computing software, the basic, you know, uh, you know, we have our operating system, which is Apple, you have Windows, but you know, to do work, you know, we just need Office 365. So I think with that understanding, you know, I think it wasn't a risky uh, move of their of, of theirs. In fact, I think it is a very timely um, thing that they, they should have done uh, a long time ago. Yeah. So so really the mode of the product is really good and it's so distributed worldwide. In fact, even if you look at China, come on, they're still using Office 365 after so many donkey years, right? It really shows that the strength of that software and it's just really a utility in itself. Yeah, but is Microsoft the SaaS company going back to the original comment of this business of this uh, t podcast? I mean, they're, they they own so many different businesses, you know. Like, I mean, link, you know, on their LinkedIn business, I would argue it's a SaaS. I mean, the Xbox is more razor razor blade to a degree because you have to buy the box, but then you know you, up, you know, you can buy all the extra services. So I mean, and then but then on the and then on the Microsoft Office side, like that would that would be a SaaS model, right? Like I have to I have to pay a subscription every year to get Microsoft uh, three hundred and sixty, you know, so that I have that on my computer and. I, well, I, 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 I wish I wish they went back to the one-time purchase. Yeah, because we're spending more money now, right? And you know, look, oh, I had that before, and and that's that's the whole idea, and that's um, that's when you look back, there was not that you know there really wasn't that much risk when you look back, and to Kelvin's point, because of the necessity for the average person to have to subscribe, um, and. But at the time, it seemed to be a very risky proposition. In hindsight, not as much. And it seemed to be risky because you say, well, you know, look, I have my, you know, when I got it on the CD or whatever, and I uploaded my Microsoft Office 2008 or whatever it was, or 2010, um, I probably wouldn't need it until I got a new computer or if I lost that CD and the code and everything like that, or until the accessibility went away when the next generation came out. And you know, what, how much did that cost? $100 in 2010? I'm spending $120 a year now just for basic functionality. I mean, I mean, look at Apple Care, right? Apple Care, they used to, whenever you go and buy a computer, you'd have to, you know, they give you the CD. Here's, here's your CD, upload Apple Care, or you pay that extra bit each time. You know, now it's just software and you pay the same price. I mean, it, it's, it's the, so the amazing part about software. From a corporate perspective, John, the broader corporate perspective is that Microsoft apparently has chosen to generate even more revenue based upon the, what was what Kelvin said, the fact that it's a foundational application. And they, they, people cannot go away from it. Like you said, it's electricity. They can't, they can't just shut it off. So if it's foundational, let's, let's call it monopolistic if you really want to look at it that way. There are no other spreadsheets that are out there. There's no, you know, there are, but I don't, I couldn't even name them. Hey, I try for a business school project. I tried to make an argument that uh, Google Sheets was just as good uh, for doing financial metrics as uh, Excel. And uh, 
I wasn't laughed out of the classroom, but I mean, I made it a compelling argument. You know, I, there was a, some basic it's, functionality. It's still a spreadsheet. I mean, I'll, fundamentally, it's still a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet. It doesn't make a damn That's true. Different. It does. You know, you can do some. You and know, as you know, the, the, the functionality, the functionality <laughs> that you use in something that tool is extremely modest. It's like five percent of what the uh, what the number what the functionality is. Again, we're getting off topic, but again, it's kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, but again, is 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 Microsoft a SaaS company? I, I think I don't know. I, I I get my answer on it. I think it's it's yes and no because they have so many different. Well, but lines I think that's where you saw the valuation go up so much yeah. over the last five years, right? I think it's it's run up dramatically. Uh, and why is that? Why was that? And it's because a ma major parts of their business turned into SaaS companies. Whether you define Microsoft as a whole as a SaaS company think is a little bit irrelevant. It's more of their major business lines that generate the majority of their revenue collectively are SaaS companies. And that's and they transitioned into it over the last five or six years. And that's why the stock price has gone through the roof during that time period. I would argue that Microsoft, you make it, did they have the balls to change or did they take the big risk to change and all that stuff? <clears throat> I look, they may look at on the other side is that they were probably being hammered on by various companies, because they are in every large company in the universe, okay? Um, they have they have huge connections everywhere. They got major, major amounts of information and research being done. And again, they have customers telling them what to do. And, and if, they, if, they, if they, they may have not chosen to respond quickly enough or whatever, but again, I will argue that uh, the reason why they changed was because they, they, were, they were looking forward at going down the tank, okay? Again, I'm, I'm being a little bit more broadly based here, but. You know, they saw their handwriting on the wall, and they had—they they almost had to change. I don't think they were disrupting their own business. I think that they were probably kicking and screaming to do it because they had so much, you know, control over what was going on. Uh, again, Calvin said, "We said it, it, it's foundational, and um, you can't." Well, when you, you can't when you think, well, you think about a transition to to that to software for that. I mean, you you have some major corporations that are now going to have to create subscriptions. I mean, you have to now think about all the investments you have to make in security. You know, I mean, I'm sure I, I Kevin, to, to a degree, I bet you're right, is there was kicking and screaming because they were probably looking at that's at the risk management sign like, oh, shit, like we're going to spend millions, potentially billions right now just to make sure that our potential customers, our existing customer base feels secure and now switching to a subscription model, you know, it's, and that's across the board, I'm sure. The biggest, it's probably the biggest decision that many companies are into right now is the, is the, is the choice a wrap, it wraps around the IT discussion as well. It's the choice of do we or do we not? Now, how do we do this move from legacy to SaaS? Um, the government, the US government, has pretty much basically said, we're not doing SaaS, okay? So, and they're one of the biggest influences of revenue in, in, in many, many places. Um, large companies, they do it, they, they do it, um, help me with the word here, Kelvin, it's the in rep, but they do it in-house, okay? They, will, they, they want the computer inside of their their firewall, but they'll put your software on it, okay? Rather than buying it off the street, uh, you know, coming down, coming down the wire. So there's there was all kinds of these issues that people just just they just not wanted to leave legacy yet, okay? And whole, wholesale into uh, into using a connection over the cloud to access what proprietary information. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on that um, that is fundamentally changing in the IT business. Um, you know, so then there's quite a bit of fear related to what could happen if the data is out there, you know, in the cloud and someone else can access it. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of issues about why 
you don't want to go to SaaS. Okay, so that's, those are the other sides, the other side of it. And that's one of the reasons why it takes some companies kicking and again, I use the word kicking and screaming to get in there because, oh, geez, you know, I don't want this. So there's a split mode in, in, in B2B. There's oftentimes these splits between um, either getting it directly off the cloud or having having a, 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 a customer based, having the customer uh, host the software that you provide on their own internal operation. Now, Calvin, it's a word in it. Maybe you know what the word means. I, I think I just add on, I, I I do not know everything, but from Singapore's perspective, recently we had a, a FinTech event and we'll talk a little bit about, about cloud as well. So I think a lot of our services, while it's on-prem, but I guess it's slowly uh, shifting to cloud. I think cloud is something that is really hard for us to reject because the value that's providing is just way more, um, you know, than, than inconvenience. For example, you know, you talk about on-prem, you know, you, you need to have like engineers on-site to, to, to solve the issue. You cannot do it off-site. You have to be on-site. And, you know, in terms of agility, you know, that's actually a bit restricted. And I think all of us are probably aware that uh, Azure won the contract from Pentagon to do actually a private cloud. Uh, I, I started to see adoptions coming on already. I mean, in, in Singapore, the government sector is that, hey, you know, uh, cloud used to be a, a word that, you know, don't speak about it at all because there's going to be risk, you know, if things on a cloud, it's going to be exposed to hackers here and there. But now, you know, we are having this uh, uh, private cloud thing and also having a hybrid. But I guess over time, things will move uh, over to the cloud uh, fully. I, you know, there's this, even this program from the US called a FedRAM. It's called Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program. Um, there are some Salesforce is on the program. Uh, I think Zoom is on the program. Datadog is on the program. It really shows that the, the government have actually uh, uh, created a program to certify certain software companies to be safe, to be used on government's uh, services. So I, I do think that uh, the change is, is going to happen or has already happened. The other part, the other part that's basically resisting SaaS um, is the fact that many, many companies see it whether good or bad, depending upon how you look at it, is it's a it affects employees and the number of employees that you have. The outsourcing, of course, takes much of your IT department and dismisses them. Uh, the there's a company that we track we, where they're doing these oil and gas businesses where the they have analysts working uh, to review data that predominantly uh, is on Excel. Um, these new apps are putting them on cloud-based environments in AI. And as a result, these analysts' jobs are going away. So again, there are there are there are both um, uh, in, uh, corporate internal HR issues with regard to uh, personnel ma management and things of that side, and individuals who have a fear that their job is going to be placed, replaced. So again, if you look at selling some of these things, selling from a, uh, a legacy to a uh, to a SaaS solution. You have you have a you have a constraints or barriers that are in the way regard re, re, related to dealing with people. Okay, so again, those those, those are some of the reasons why um, the SaaS model is a bit feared in some cases um, and is getting is getting um, a lot of pushback. I, I think I just want to add a quick comment on that, and also like the the way how software. Is, is that this is the only thing that they do. So I think for software companies, this is really the core competence, uh, core competency. But let's say if you have your own team, you know, how can you claim that your own team is competent when they're just doing work for you? As opposed to having a software core team 
that is providing a software service and getting feedback from thousands and hundreds of customers. So I believe that actually when we do outsource it to someone, a software developer who has core competency in that area, we actually get a better outcome and a better product kind of service us a lot better. So I, I really think that uh, it may sound a bit uh, 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 not caring, you know, but I think that the world will move on and we just have to evolve and just find ways to make ourselves more useful regardless in whatever jobs that we are in because would we rather stay with the kind of solutions that we have or we think that there's a better solution out there and we should adopt it and move forward along with the time. So that's just my uh, two cents in, in that. So I, I wanted to close out this panel today because I, I look, this is going to be part one of, I don't know, 50 when we're talking about SaaS and valuing SaaS. But all right, this this should be fun here. So let's say we wanted to create a, a SaaS-based company and we're about to IPO tomorrow and we want to get the fattest valuation we possibly can. Uh, I mean, we could be pre-revenue revenue, right? It doesn't, you know, that, it doesn't matter to me at this point, you know, but we want a fat valuation, you know, post IPO, right? So what would be the most ideal SaaS company that we could create? And we don't have to say specifically what sector. If we want, we could go like, all right, it's a SaaS model and niche, you know, business, but, and I guess we could get fun with that, but that, I guess I'm just already getting started there. But, you know, what, what would you guys say is the ideal SaaS business model and this particular sector to get the fattest valuation we can? Well, financial services, right? But but I don't know, this is SaaS adjacent, but there was an interesting article about OnlyFans a couple of days ago <laughs> that I read. And I think, you know, that's a recurring revenue. I don't know if we want to call it software, depending on how things are delivered. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, to go outside of even kind of the pornography area, erotica, or they, like the OnlyFans, these fan subscription models, and that recurring revenue could be massive, incredible. And the story that could be told to that is where you get those valuations. But if you want to go a little adjacent to that, you know, in the financial services area, and if you're taking a cut of every every transaction that's being made um, there's some vertical integration potential there <laughs> as well to any sub sort of subscription model and if you can vertically integrate in that way and tell the story uh, about how then you'll take over the world in the next 10 years then there is just no valuation that you know it, it the highest number could be justified <laughs> in any way even if it's free revenue if, if I wanted to generate a ridiculously high valuation for a company at this time, it would probably be something where if I breathed on my, my on my phone, it would tell me whether or not I had an infection. Okay, that's today. I mean, that doesn't. That's, I don't think that the valuation is long lasting, but it has the it has the opportunity to be global. It has the opportunity to be based upon uh, a fear, which is always great to sell on, and something of that type. So again, it's, um, <clears throat> and it's COVID and it's related. But again, it's, if it's today. That's where I'd go. I mean, I, you know, I don't really care about what's going to happen in my valuation a year from now because the company is all about making money by selling my stock. Yeah, I, I guess kind of Steven hit the nail. I'm particularly very um, enthusiastic about financial companies at Yen. You look at Stripe, you look at the valuations they're commanding is 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 high because, um, yeah, addressing a global market. So that's really a huge thing. Um, I I think sometimes. In terms of health, I may have a differing view on that because um, you only take care of your health when shit happens, right? When shit doesn't happen, you just go around eating all your fast food. So people may not feel compelled to kind of pay that subscription. Um, 
and fear do sell to some people but if you have not experienced it it doesn't like kind of sells to me so um uh, but i think finance fi financial is something really interesting so i, I i'm thinking that i'm thinking along the lines of um you know assess business that's serving uh, uh there's uh, uh, you know on the on the financial side so steven it sounds like kelvin has become a striped acolyte well, look, I mean, I, I, that's what I said. If I had one investment I could make in the next 10 years and hold it for 10, 20 years, I, I'd pick Stripe uh, if you have access to it. And look, I don't buy things at the IPO very often, but I would buy Stripe immediately and just tuck it away and, and let it and hold it. All right. I think we're there, gents. That was that was uh, some good answers. It sounds like uh, collectively we have a two to one advantage on a financial services B2C SaaS company versus a health tech. I think our, our, you'd want it to be a B2C uh, SaaS company. But you know what? I'm going to ask that on Twitter, too, and see what everybody else says so that may, maybe we can uh, come up with a uh, create a collective for one company just based on a crowdsourced information, you know, and then uh and then uh, maybe Kevin can develop it, you know, using uh, what would you say? It's co COBOL? Yeah, with COBOL. Or I've never even heard of that, honestly, until <laughs> <till> today. <laughs> well, you know, the thing, Bobby, we've got so we've got a business idea that Kevin introduced here. What would maybe create a Twitter poll? What valuation would you put on that idea if it were to be public today? let's say pre-revenue, this is like a Nicola situation, right? It got, it reverse merged into a SPAC and became public. And this is the idea and it was proven to work and it's going to be rolled out in the next three months. You know, what sort of, of valuation do you get on that in three or four months from now when it starts creating revenue? Uh, just run up and down, run up and down Sand Hill, Sand Hill Ave and just shout the Shout out and see what the answers come back as. Wait, no, Kevin. You know what? We're gonna have to teach Kevin how to create a poll so that he can uh, do it. Hey, that, wait, that'll poll. that'll get him above the five hundred first. Hey, if if we, if, the poll. Like, today's poll. Today's poll was is shorting part of your, your trading strategy. Oh, How many a, votes do engaging. we have? That's engaging. I, well, I, you know, I only have five hundred, less than five hundred. So then, you know, <laughs> you have to have. If I had twelve thousand, it'd be far. It'd be far more interesting. That's an engaging question, though. I like that, Kevin. That was a, that's other, a good one. So the other one, the other question that I had was, uh, what is your investment strategy? Do you have a do you do you, do you invest? Do you trade according to a plan? Do you trade according to your gut? Do you trade because the stockbroker tells you what to do, or do you trade because the Twitter guru tells you to do something? Okay. The best the best reply was zero stockbrokers. Okay. But the other part was that fifty percent of them were I, I trade my gut. I can't tell you how many stockbroker numbers I've blocked in like the last three years. Yeah. It's it's Funny. insane, and they still find my numbers somehow. You know, like, oh man, so many pitches. Wait, wait, wait. But anyway, okay. but anyway, anyways, guys, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Give everybody where they can go and find more information on you and to follow you. So, uh, Kevin, uh, the good prick at the good. I'm prick. still at the good prick. And um, I actually, because of you two guys, not necessarily Calvin, because he hasn't been punching on me, I've become very engaged and uh, I am surging in the number of people that I have, uh, have following me now. And as I mentioned to you two guys, I've already got my red speedo already set up and uh, I'm practicing. Yeah, look at that. There it is. There, there, it, is. Is. there it is. Did you download TikTok? Is that so? Have you actually downloaded TikTok? 
No, I I just looked at the uh, the, the Jack Black thing on on YouTube. Uh, but no, you can find me at Stephen underscore Keel on Twitter. Uh, happy to engage. All right, Kelvin. All right, so uh, you can find me at Slingshot Cap. Yeah, just just Slingshot Cap on Twitter. Very cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. That was really awesome. Stay safe. Good luck. And uh, I look forward to our next uh, panel where uh, we talk about SaaS for the next like four weeks. Take care, guys. Thanks, Bobby.